ask about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Jason Borger, and he'll be answering your most important questions on single-handed fly casting. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Jason a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next show is. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Jason Borger about single-handed fly casting. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. Before we introduce Jason, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Jason's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Jason's latest book, Single-Handed Fly Casting, a Modular Approach. Jason has so kindly offered this um, as a prize tonight, so we want to thank him for that. And um, to win this book tonight, you're going to have to answer one of the questions I ask at the end of the show. Uh, it, it could be one, two-part two questions. Um, you never know. So be ready to do that. Uh, the question will be about something Jason and I talk about during the show. Just submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage. And uh, you may win Jason's book, Single-Handed Fly Casting. So pay attention, take good notes, and, uh, and join us at the end to try to win that great prize. Our guest tonight is Jason Borger. Jason is a professional fly fishing educator. He published his first fly fishing article at age 13. He began working on fly fishing videos when he was 16. He later worked on the silver screen adaptation of A River Runs Through It, serving as one of the film's fly casting doubles. He's also the author of the book, Jason Borger's Nature of Fly Casting, and serves as an education director for the Fly Casting Institute, as well as he's written his most recent book, Single-Handed Fly Casting. Jason has contributed articles to magazines such as Fly Fish America, Fly Fisherman, and Fly Rod and Reel, as well as numerous international publications. In addition to his writing, Jason is also an illustrator and painter of fly fishing subjects. Jason, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me, Roger. Pleased to be here. Yeah, great to have you again. And as we were just chatting here, um, just looking back, we've done uh, four other shows with Jason. Uh, 
casting and presentation strategies for trout, angling approaches for streams, casting, mending, and presentation for difficult angling situations, and skinny water trout. So uh, uh, it doesn't end here tonight with our talk tonight. After tonight, you've got plenty of other uh, shows to listen to and to learn from. So I, I encourage you to look those up in our archive and, and take advantage of those. So, Well, um, new book, Jason. So let, let's start with that. Uh, tell us about your new book, Single-Handed Fly Casting, A Modular Approach. How did it come to be? What's the structure of it, the modules, illustrations? Because you, you have a little bit different approach you took this time. Yeah, it came to be through, uh, you know, I'm sick of pain and agony, <laughs> I like to say. Just all the writing and the illustration and everything that, that had to get done for it um, was really significant. And it, it really sort of developed, and I'm going to say it developed right on the tail end of the, of the previous book. And it's sort of something that's been in my head for a long time. Um, it's something that I think needed to wait for a little while until I could uh, spend some time uh, with some technologies like motion capture and high-speed video so that, uh, or, you know, high-speed meaning slow motion when you look at it at regular speed, uh, so that I could really get a better grasp of certain things that were going on to Flycast, as well as working with uh, some friends who are physicists and engineers and so forth to really nail down some, some Flycasting concepts and some underlying things that are going on that aren't necessarily visible to the eye or the hand in real time. Uh, and then taking all that info and, and kind of congealing it down to something that is only slightly deep. So, it, it, like I said, it's been a bit of a journey, and everybody sort of had to, to uh, at times, sort of force it into completion. But it is uh, done and out. And uh, as part of what I did during the process, sort of continuing that concept of using things like uh, high frame rate video, I went and I shot essentially the entire book on slow motion HD. So... I had every single cast and every single skill I wanted to look at in slow-mo. And I could then take those frames out of each one of those little pieces of video footage and turn those into drawings and put those in the book. So what you get in the book is this, uh, this structured approach, and I'll talk about that in just a second, that, that is really illuminated with uh, drawings that are based directly on reality and they're based on slow-mo stuff. So it's not... You know, there's no guessing going on. What you see is really what was happening. And I think that, that gives it uh, an authenticity that I really was after. And all of that is, is wrapped in this idea of the modular approach, which is each little bit of fly casting can be learned as a piece, a chunk, and I call it a module because it kind of sounds cool. But really, it's just a little skill you can learn. A sidearm cast, just the back cast. Uh, a forward cast overhead, just that. And you can combine those things, and you can make other stuff. So it's not casting as a bunch of these sort of seemingly semi-related things that are going on. It's really casting as uh, a bunch of little skills that you can learn fairly easily, uh, depends on the skill, and then you can reuse those or adjust them as necessary to make all sorts of new good stuff for yourself, whether it's a named skill or something you come up with on your own. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. And then you did all the writing and the drawing and the photography, huh? So, uh, yeah, I did all the photography, all the drawing, all the writing, and the layout. I also do that as well. I didn't print it. Uh, I didn't oh, press, but just, just about everything else, yeah. Yeah, wow. Cool. Very good job. Uh, Phil McCartney in, uh, in Kentucky asked, well, he wrote in and says, uh, by using your first book, Nature of Fly Casting, I was able to develop a much better understanding of the various modules that combine to create a cast. I've taught mathematics for over 40 years, 
And I would like to know if your new book builds upon your first one in the same way Calculus 2 builds upon Calculus 1, or if the new book is a completely different take on flycasting. Yeah, this is Calculus 2, <laughs> definitely. Uh, it's not a completely different take. Uh, I do think that the information really everywhere within the book has been completely updated to the most modern spec, so to speak, in terms of knowledge base of flycasting, which has come about yeah, you know, in the last decade or so, there's been some very big leaps in terms of understanding of kind of what's going on with the flycast, and a lot of that gets integrated in there. Uh, but with the modular approach, if you have the first book, the second one will feel very similar. Um, but it's not just a slight update. It was essentially a completely new text from page one. Now, there are some similarities throughout, obviously, because we're talking about the same types of skills. But as far as a learning text goes, uh, I think it is more refined, and I think that it works, I think, better than the first book, uh, just in terms of information flow and in terms of uh, what's available as far as information goes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is this a book that one would use to teach themselves or to improve themselves, or is this a book that uh, an instructor would use? Both, a, really. Textbook. I, I wrote it with both audiences in mind. Okay. Uh, it starts with the most basic concepts of flycasting. You know, what is flycasting? And it progresses into about as advanced as you want to get with a single-handed rod. You know, you could write a thousand-page book on flycasting. This one comes in at 320. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, it covers a lot of territory. It doesn't cover absolutely everything. And I didn't have the patience or the willpower to do a thousand-page book on flycasting. The thought crossed my mind at one point, and I immediately I put that aside. But if you tell me, covers, covers quite a bit, uh, including uh, single-handed, uh, what I call spay-type casting, because there are sort of the traditional spay casts as well as some of the more modern uh, spay-type casts. Uh, so it covers uh, really the spectrum of single-handed fly casting from the perspective of the skills I use and teach with on an everyday basis. So that's why it's you know, relatively compact. I think it's 320 pages versus just everything. So it's really what I focus on uh, myself above and beyond uh, anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, just a quick side note here. Uh, we had some comment. Uh, Jason's in his car with his cell phone, so the audio may not be stellar uh, given that situation, but that's the best we got for you guys. So uh, those of you that wrote in uh, commenting on that, that's, that's where we're at. Okay, guys? So, okay, Um we have uh, Kendall in Spring, Texas. Um, he said, what would you recommend for somebody just getting into the sport of fly fishing and the best place to start to, on the basics of casting? Well, I think that getting some good advice on equipment is always important. It's easy to go equipment wild in a sport like uh, fly fishing. Uh, but I also think that in addition to getting some good advice on equipment, depending on what it is you're going to be doing, uh, getting some good casting education early on is important. I just think it's very important. Uh, it really is the physical aspect of fly fishing, is the fly casting and the mending. So from my perspective, uh, get some good lessons. And, you know, maybe buy yourself a reference work, too, or three or four. There, there are a lot of good books and videos uh, that are available, and uh, each will sort of teach in a different way. Uh, and right. those are good references against uh, having live instruction as well. So there's sort of the three things going on. You've got the book, which is like your deep reference, and you've got a video, which is something that's a little bit more immediate, and then you've got live instruction, which, of course, is at your elbow. So those three things together can really help. And 
I'll tell you what, I rarely hear anybody complain about being too good of a flycaster. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, um, I think a book like yours along with, um, you know, an instructor uh, is a good combination. I, I know I started, I learned how to fly cast on my own, you know, I mean, with no book, with nothing, just fooling around, basically. And I, I kind of learned skiing the same way. And uh, <laughs> then when you get with an instructor, they can see all the things that you learned wrong uh, and have practiced uh, doing it wrong for all these years and, and corrected. Um, funny thing is, I just started a, a new sport for myself called pickleball, and it's kind of a cross between ping pong and tennis. And um, uh, but I decided this time I'm going to do it right, and I'm going to get a teacher <laughs> and learn the proper way. It makes all the difference in the world. So um, uh, it's never and, too late either. You can always get no. instruction. No, I remember the first time I went, you know, fishing in the saltwater. I, I hired a well, back then it was the Federation, you know, uh, certified instructor to help me just on the aspects of, you know, casting in saltwater. And uh, it was tremendously helpful, tremendously. Well, worth, I mean, just in one hour, it's amazing what somebody can show you how to do and, and things to practice. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, that's a good place. Uh, John in Ontario says, uh, Jason, I've been fly fishing for 46 years without any real casting instruction. Sometimes I do okay, and sometimes it's real ugly. I am not particularly coordinated. What do you suggest that might help me to get to the end of the journey without continually embarrassing myself with sloppy technique? It isn't as simple as watch a video, practice a bit, cast casting well. Kind of some of the same answers, huh? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, we may have already covered some of that. Yeah, yeah. I can say that... that when you look at anybody that does anything really well, and I'm talking uh, from a physical perspective, any other favorite sports figures, they do something really well. They make it look effortless, like there's, like there's just, it's just there. It's just part of them. But it's not effortless, of course, and it's come from having really solid foundations. So really going back and, and working on having a really solid foundation in the core fly cast. And usually we think of that as the overhead cast, simply because it's the one we build so much stuff from. So having a really solid foundation there is, I think, critical, uh, really, to taking casting in any other kind of direction. So sometimes you have to just go back and relearn. And like you, I, I had to relearn how to uh, shoot sporting clays, for instance. You know, I grew up hunting, uh, pheasants, and grouse, and we're talking all that kind of stuff. You know, I thought I was a pretty decent shot until I went and shot with some people who were actually decent shots and discovered that was not the case. So I went and got some competent instruction and went from shooting, you know, low 70s on a course to shooting high 80s and uh, discovered that some of the things that were, were really key were just the fundamentals that I was simply missing. So going back, it's never too late to do that and to sort of reset yourself. Right, and I think you can contact um, – uh you know, you can contact your local shop to get some certified instructors as well as, um, you know, contacting the, the Fly Fishers International, and uh, they have a, a long list of people available in your area. Um, and I, I think that's the first place I'd go, wouldn't you, Jason? I mean, to get somebody that's been certified instructor? Yeah, as, as long as you've got somebody who has a decent reputation and maybe there's a little bit of word of mouth surrounding that. Uh, right. That. That was certainly a good route. And, uh, for example, in the book, uh, one of the things I, I work on is what I call self-teaching exercises. So being able to self-critique is also important in this process. 
because ultimately, no matter what the instructor does for you, at the end of the day, when the instructor does right, it's up to you. So if you want to continue that quality of fly casting, you've got to have some ways in which you can reference that instruction, whether the instructor gives you uh, that, you know, a printout or a handout or you have a book or you have a video that can reference those specific things. So you can work on things that you know, you yeah. know, our motion is right, you're getting the right result. That's also, in my, in my opinion, pretty key. Yeah. Yeah, I know when I got your book, uh, I went to the section on, uh, you know, single and double haul and, uh, and did what you said, you know, a pan of mind, you know, without a rod even, you know, just, Trying to recreate what I do to see if it's what you're telling me to do, and uh, and you know it was easy to follow your instructions uh, doing that, and and I realized unconsciously that I believe I'm doing it right. <laughs> so uh, again, you know, having somebody look at that uh, or look at it on video might tell a different story, but following through that, the steps seemed to be matching. So I was I was kind of encouraged by that. So. That's great to hear. Good. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, Let's talk about equipment. Uh, Ed in uh, Wisconsin asked, you know, when, when learning how to fly cast, what type of rod should one learn on? What length, what taper, action, what line, weight forward, double taper, fiberglass, or graphite? Uh, by the way, I'm a real disciple of your dad. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, and I sort of grew up automatically as a disciple of my dad. I couldn't avoid that one, which was fine because I got to do an awful lot of great fishing and casting along the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so this is kind of a you know, honest question, uh, but I think we could touch on some, some basics and some generalizations that could probably help people, especially if they're just sort of getting into this. Um, what I really like is I think for most people, and I'm going I'm to say most people because there, there are always outliers on, on both sides of this, but for most people, something that's uh, in the medium, medium fast range in terms of modern lingo, what medium and medium fast mean uh, in terms of action, uh, it's just due to sort of the bell curve of how people's uh, reactions are physically. There are some people who are really powerful, really, really quick muscle uh, movements, and they may benefit from a different action of rod. Other people uh, may benefit from being a bit slower, but I think if you sort of took the middle of that bell curve of how people are, how people sort of interact with, you know, uh, sports and with range of motion and doing certain types of things that are required for throwing and, and things like that. There are some place in that medium to medium fast range sits a lot of people, just in terms of the action. Uh, if the rod feels like a like a board, uh, it's either mismatched in terms of how the equipment is set up, or it's just simply you know going to be too stiff for for you. And conversely, if it feels like it's uh, wiggling around and you're losing track of it and it's lagging behind you. You probably need to go with something that's a little bit stiffer and has maybe perhaps a bit faster action. Uh, as far as lines go, you know, weight forward or DT, the lines have gotten so good these days. It's it, it comes down to using, I think, you know, a, a relatively friendly taper. And again, that's something you can you can find out at a shop pretty easily. What recommendations they might have for what they have in stock, but just something that's sort of the middle of the road kind of taper. You know, a general trout taper if you're going to be fishing, uh, you know, in those line weights. Uh, just an all-around salt paper or something, if you're going to be doing more of that. Uh, you don't want anything that's too far to the extremes. Again, you, you sort of kind of stay down the middle when you're getting going versus going to one of the extremes. Fiberglass or graphite? Well, there's been some real resurgence in fiberglass. There's some mighty good fiberglass rods that are available in terms of casting tools. Uh, but I think that most people are probably going to end up with, you know, with a graphite rod just due to the popularity and the fact that there are you know, so many options. 
out there. Uh, but you want something that you, again, you like the feel of, you like the look of, and that type of thing. So, you know, something that's, you know, I almost hate to say the 9-foot-5 weight because it's seem, seemingly ubiquitous, but for a lot of people, you know, that 8.5 to 9-foot range, 5 to 6 weight category, again, is, is a great place to learn on unless you're doing, you know, for sure going to be doing things like salt, heavier salt or bass or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Gary uh, Kurtz in, in Newark, Ohio, asks, uh, how big, uh, as in weight of rod, six, seven, eight, can you effectively cast with a single hand? Well, uh, if, he's, if, he, if, if by you he means me, uh, I'll cast anything with a single hand in terms of, as long as it's an actual single-handed rod or a switch, uh, up through like a 16-weight. But effectively, well, when you start getting above about a 10, uh, you're really starting to get into uh, fighting tools. You know, a good 12-weight you can cast quite nicely. In fact, a good 12-weight can make some awesome little loops. Uh, but I, I find for myself, once I start getting above a 10, I feel like I'm starting to cast fighting tools more than I am casting tools. That's just me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that... Uh, you know, the switch rods are kind of interesting because you can you can do some other things there with your other hand if you want to. Uh, that's sort of its own little category. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a ten is usually what I recommend. It's like the upper limit for uh, just general casting practice, unless you're going to be spending all day casting a twelve or something for big tarpon or some other giant. Right, fish. right, yeah. Uh, Bill Henry in um, in Brooklyn, New York, says I have used several fly lines in the past ten years for single-handed fly casting. From Wolf Ambush Taper to Rio Fly Lines, is there a fly line you prefer or recommend? Uh-oh. <laughs> There's a loaded question. Yeah. And, uh, well, I think in some ways uh, we're kind of in, I won't say the golden age of fly lines. That, that, that would harken back. How about the platinum age of fly lines or the titanium age of fly lines? We've got so much good stuff. It's just it's kind of an embarrassment of riches, really. Uh, Almost can't I go wrong, think- huh? You almost can't, as long as you're buying the right line for what it is you're going to be doing. Right. That's the kicker. See, I think in fly fishing, it's the, the magic is in the fly line. That is really where it is. The rods get all the, you know, all the uh, attention. I mean, they're kind of the, you know, the paparazzi wants to take photos of the rods, but it's the line that's the magic. So finding the right line for, for what you're doing is, is key. Uh, if you're just doing general trout fishing, well, hey. You know, a general trout fishing taper will work great. But like I said, there's kind of this embarrassment of riches of, of possibility out there. So uh, I can tell you generally what I like, and that is a line that shoots well, um, which can mean nothing more than a clean line sometimes, even a beautifully designed line with textured finish and so forth that goes like crazy. If it gets really dirty, it's not going not gonna to function well. So uh, I like a clean line, and I like a line that really is designed for for what I'm doing and the size of the fly I'm going to be casting. Not so much the size of the fish I'm after, but right. the size of the fly. I mean, you, you look at largemouth bass, and they're not that big. Even a really big largemouth bass is not all that big, but you're casting half a chicken. So yeah. you want a line that's, that's going to help you with that. Exactly, uh, yeah. So that would be, I guess, my, my general advice. Uh, and maybe you can find a shop that'll let you try a few things out if they've got some water handy. Mm-hmm. That, would, yeah. that would really help cement it. Yeah. What other equipment do you recommend one have? Uh, practice casting? Video camera, number one. Okay. If you're getting serious about your practice casting. And when I say video camera, I'm holding one in my hand right now that shoots, uh, let's see here, 4K, 60. 
So I can shoot 4K video at 60 frames per second, and I went and got it over at the uh, local cell phone store. So one of those is really beneficial because it tells the truth. And you can set it up to shoot from the side and then also from the front if you want or the back to check your tracking and things like that. Because uh, you need to have almost instantaneous feedback. Do a few casts, walk over, take a look. So what's going on? So that's one thing that I, I find is very important. Uh, sometimes if you're going to be fishing for, well, you're going to Belize, right? Yeah. So if you want to be, if you want to practice well for Belize, you're going to have the equipment that you're going to be using, but you should also probably spend a little time casting some of the flies. So maybe you sacrifice one of those, you know, 795 specials, crabs or whatever, and break a hook off, and actually practice casting with that thing and see what it's really like. Uh, if it helps you, get up on a picnic table, something along those lines, and put out a measuring tape. There's another thing you can practice with. And when the guy starts screeching at you that, you know, can't you see the permit? It's right there. It's, it's you know, 11 o'clock at, at 60 feet. You know what 11 o'clock at 60 feet actually looks like for real versus, you know, what's 60 feet? I don't know. Not, well, now you'll know. Yeah. So it's, it's a way to, to really just sort of preset your head for what's coming to you. And uh, so beyond those things, I also like to have uh, – I keep the line clean as I'm going, so I usually get some little line cleaner to, to have with me, not just clean the line ahead of time, but I like to make sure the line stays clean. And I'll usually get things like hula hoops or some soccer cones, those little plastic orange ones you can pick up at the sporting goods store, uh, because those give you a sense of, you know, sort of four and a half, right and left, and you can set that stuff up to give yourself a little bit of an obstacle course. Whether you're fishing long straight casts for tarpon or you're fishing curvy weird stuff in the mountains for trout, you can set it up as you need to. So I think those things those things would give you a pretty good bag for practice. Okay, okay. Um, let's, uh, let's see. We got uh, one more on equipment, and then we'll take a quick break here. Uh, Rick Takahashi wrote in. Oh, says, Jason, looking All forward right. to the to your discussion. When you talk about single-handed casting, does that include casting a switch rod? I have a new Elkhorn switch rod, four weight, and would like to hear what you might recommend for fly line to do overhead casting. I like to fish a switch rod when fishing lakes on a windy day from shore. Mm. Well, I would say the single-handed casting does include uh, switch rods simply because you can switch them up between single and double in terms of you know, how many hands are holding the rod. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as uh, a fly line for overhead casting, uh, I think one of the first things I would do is just check manufacturer's suggestion for uh, green for that. So, you know, what's the green window on the rod? That'll give you an idea of what line you should probably grab for uh, overhead style casting versus uh, spay type stuff. And then from there, you know, if you like to do fishing windy days from shore, well, one of the things you might want to look into is a head, maybe a floating head or intermediate head. Uh, That might give you, you know, that little extra punch, a little extra distance uh, in those conditions, help deliver a fly. But, again, that might depend a little bit on leader setup and what's going on with uh, how far you're fishing and and what else you're trying to do. Um, But heads have become extremely popular for all sorts of things, even, I mean, practically pan fish, you know. It's uh, Hmm. become sort of its own little category of resurgence in fly lines, I think, in the last few years. But that's what I would do. Look at the green window and then try to figure out, you know, would a head work for me? Is it a long head, short head? What, What am I trying to do and what am I trying to achieve? as far as distance and, and fly presentation and so forth. 
Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, dive into some uh, casting techniques and uh, strategies here. So stick with us, folks, and we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at their ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Jason Borger about single-handed fly casting. If you'd like to ask Jason a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And so, Jason, what, what else uh, is going on in your fly fishing world? I know, you know, kind of finishing this book was a major project. took uh, probably a couple of years, I, I suppose, or longer. Um, anything new on the horizon or uh, in the way of uh, education? Well, I'm, I'm always sort of looking ahead at, at what I could do next as far as books and videos and that type of thing. And I think that, that this book, in the way I structured it when I wrote it, and uh, kind of what's left over on the pasteboard, uh, I had like, I want to say 25,000 words that were not included in the book. I think there's definitely some room for uh, some sort of follow-up in the not-too-distant future. Uh, maybe oh. a bit more focused. Um, I've got a fair number of requests for people that want to have a text on uh, what you might call a technical or presentation-style fly casting. Um, and I've got lots and lots of words for that plus stories. So maybe I'll pursue that avenue or, uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a, a video in the future. I'm not exactly certain at this point. Um, this project was it was pretty tough to get finished, and I'm just glad it's done. So the yeah. next project, whatever it is, will definitely be less in scope. Let's put it that way. Well, <laughs> more focused. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we did get a question here on the Internet uh, from Bill Elliott in Rochester, New York. He says he wants to know if there's uh, videos are offered with uh, the high-speed slow-motion sequences that you illustrated in the book. Uh, no, actually, because the way I shot them, uh, really was for illustrative purposes in terms of what I needed as an illustrator to make them. So the videos would be, they'd be ugly. <laughs> I went to the local <laughs> there you go. Set, set the camera up on a ladder and a tripod and shot. Uh, so what you've got is, is really me shooting myself, uh, just making sure that I got what I needed to see to create the illustration. Okay. Uh, so they're not very pretty. It's, it's nothing that I would, that I would want to hand out to people. And be like, well, this is this is a great example. It it might actually be a good example, but it's pretty terrible to look at, uh, simply because it was shot fast and dirty uh, for what it needed to be for me to create illustrations. So okay. unfortunately, no for this, but uh, that's not to say there won't be some other things in the future. Yeah, Jason. However, you're holding the phone right at that the past thirty seconds is is the best sound we're getting out of you. So, um, you there? It's about like this. Are we good? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Okay. Because uh, it still seems to be going in and out, so if you can kind of hold the phone as 
as carefully as you can. I'll try to um, do that. I'm sorry about that. I'll, I'll be as careful as I can. Are they good like this? Are you having, getting good reception here? Yeah, that seemed to, you seem to start going away there a second. But um, go ahead and test it again. Okay, let's test one more there, time. There, there, that's really good. If you're listening in, right there is really good? Yeah, yeah. Okay, terrific. Then I will sit exactly like this for the remainder of our time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's talk about casting. Uh, that's why we're here tonight. So um, yes. Phil in, in Kentucky said, he, he says, I seem to recall you had quit casting for a period of time due to injury. Is there an exercise routine that you use to avoid injury from repetition of your casting stroke over the span of many months? or years in your case, I'm sure. Did the injury cause you to change your stroke or casting routine? Uh, I, I actually was injured for a period of time. Uh, there were two different instances. One time I had a sort of tennis elbow that crept in, uh, not due to casting, but actually due to uh, some around-the-house kind of DIY work that I was doing. Uh, and that, that resolved over a period of, well, it was quite some time, but I, I did the, the standard standard stuff for that. Uh, I talked with my doctor as well as did a little bit of, you know, Google self-help there uh, to figure out how I could uh, sort of alleviate some of that pain. But that didn't really cause me to change a whole lot in what I did. Uh, it was just something that was there. The injury that actually caused me to really change things was, I, for lack of a better term, claimed a tendon in my casting hand, uh, basically from the base of my wrist up to the middle of my hand. And that changed some things. And I felt like my hand was on fire when that happened. And I don't know exactly why it happened, but it did. And I actually had to change my primary grip on the fly rod for, I want to say, eight to ten weeks in order to avoid pain. So it didn't change the casting stroke so much as it changed the grip. And I went from using my standard uh, three-point grip configuration that I use in a lot of my single-handed work to going to the thumb on top, which tended to alleviate a pretty fair amount of uh, stress on that particular tendon. So from my perspective, I'm glad I could do, you know, have, have more than one type of grip that I could, I could pull from that I was used to using. And I talk about that in the book, too. You know, learn more than one because they can help you in various ways. In this case, it was helping me not have, you know, sort of the burning pain to the middle of my handle I was trying to cast. So are there, are there specific things one should, you know, look out for to avoid injuries? Uh, saying things like, uh, I can pop a 120-foot cast, give me the rod. That one you need to warm up for. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. You know, you, you see people just grab stuff and, you know, like hero it. And, if, you know, when you're cold, it's a good way to actually get some kind of injury going on. Just, um, like, just like any athletic. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, you, it's like, uh, you know, grabbing a football off the ground and just, you know, setting the beer down and uh, throwing a Hail Mary like uh, Brett Favre used to do back in the day, and expecting everything to be just fine every single time. You know, what, you'll, you'll get away with it, but maybe one of those times you're going to have a problem. So a little bit of warm-up when it comes to anything like that. And, you know, if you're, if you're somebody who gets a couple of weeks a year to go fishing, maybe one week a year, you're going to do a big trip with big stuff, like you're going to go tarpon fishing, and that's your big trip. You need to get some work in ahead of time, some practice work in ahead of time, some warm-up on the muscles, getting your muscles used to the motions and movements before you go, because that's a recipe for getting hurt. Uh, grab especially big gear like that in the wind, trying to heave a big fly, and you're not used to it at all, and then all of a sudden there you are. So, you know, warm up ahead of time, do a little practice ahead of time. Uh, I do some, some weightlifting 
to help strengthen wrists and, and uh, forearms, shoulders, that type of thing. You don't have to go to that extreme. Fly casting is not really about power. It's how you apply it. But I do that anyway to keep myself you know, in decent shape for casting because I do so much of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good, good tips. Uh, in your book, you talk about uh, a fly casting mindset. Uh, can you speak to that now, about what that means to you and what it should mean to us? Uh, yeah, in fact, we, we just talked about a little bit of it, which was, you know, approach fly casting as more than just something you do every once in a while. Unless, you know, for, for, for you it's just, hey, I go out and I cast every once in a while, I catch a little fish, that kind of thing. Hey, if that's what's, what fly fishing is for you, that's awesome. But if you're going to get a little more serious about things or you need to get more serious about things because you have one of those trips planned, uh, then the mindset becomes more of, okay, you know, it's me controlling the rod. You know, we oftentimes hear things like, uh, you know, just let the rod do the work and so forth. But really what's happening is that you're doing the work really in the beginning. It's all you. It starts with you. Translates out to the rod, to the fly line. So it all comes back to you. And from a mindset perspective, beginning to focus on what you're doing versus, you know, a magical fly rod that's supposed to cure all your ills, that's really not the way you want to go. You want to start thinking about the fact that, what is my body doing? You know, how can I change what I'm doing with my body or hone what I'm doing with my body to get better results from the rod and then the line? And a lot of that comes from a couple of things. Uh, first is practice. And within practice, you have, I think, two key things that have to go on there, too, and that is the concept of control and the concept of relaxation. So control is all about controlling motion and controlling speed, controlling you know, where you're moving your arm and the fly rod through the line. And then relaxation is really about uh, just sort of taking a few breaths and, and not overthinking things. It's easy when I'm trying to learn new skills to really overthink. And sometimes you have to think about it. You really do. But then you can begin to just relax a little bit and just begin to do, let things flow. And begin to relax the grip on the fly rod. Begin to relax how much movement you're making. Just try to, to bring things in so they're a little bit more efficient. Um, just uh, well, like I said before, controlled. So, from a mindset perspective, you want to view you as the centerpiece of this, and your equipment's an extension of you. And then think about practicing with that equipment in a way that's controlled and relaxed. And that may come from having a book, videos, you know, some instruction to help you get to that point. And then thinking about fly casting from a whole holistic perspective of being. Um, really just a related set of skills that you can learn without having to learn each one individually. A sidearm cast and an elliptical cast share a lot of things. An elliptical cast and overhead cast share a lot of things. In fact, if you combine a sidearm back cast and an overhead forward cast, you've made an elliptical cast. You didn't have to learn a separate skill. So I think that getting a handle on sort of the enormity of what fly casting can be at first and just relaxing a little bit, and learning the bits and pieces as you go without forcing things along, you can really create this, this mindset of, a, of approach toward casting that allows you to learn faster and better and for the longer term. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just switched phones. I, I was hearing crackling on my So <laughs> We're just having all kinds I of problems. I think we're still good. Am, am I yeah. good for you right now? Good. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're good. Excellent. Now. All right. Um, so um, other thing is um, – Practice, uh, what practice approaches do you recommend? You, you talk about that in your book as well. I do. I think probably 
one of the most significant practice approaches that I recommend, at least when I'm initially trying to work through a skill, is, is that of pantomiming, which was really made popular by Mel Krieger back in the mid-1970s. And he originally had come up with this idea of pantomiming a double hull as a way of teaching it more rapidly. But it really applies to anything you do in fly casting. You can pantomime through the motions. And that, that may be pantomiming just with your arm, because that really is where things start with your body and your arm. Uh, but you can also add, for example, the butt section of the fly rod with a reel on there, so you have the sensations in your hand. But you're not trying to add so much that you're full-on casting again and you're getting distracted by what's going on with rod and line. Just enough to kind of give you a sense of movement and speed, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very important. And then from a, from a duration perspective, I usually tell people, once you actually get the live stuff going and you begin to work through skills, you know, anywhere from a few casts just to begin to get a sense for things and then stop, think it through, adjust anything you adjust, and pick it back up, relax, another few casts, and so on. All up to maybe 15 to 20 minutes on a certain set of skills if you're really getting into it and it's really working well for you and you're doing little tiny tweaks and you're, you know, you're sort of in charge. You're feeling like, yeah, I got this. I just want to do some adjustments, but no more than that. Our, our minds don't like to go for longer than that. So anywhere from, like I said, a few casts to maybe 15 or 20 on any one particular skill, but, but not drawing it out and uh, actually winding up going the wrong direction, getting too tired or too worn out and practicing something you don't want to be remembering. So I think that those two things alone, just to get you moving in any set of skills, uh, are a really good place to start. Yeah, I, I noticed in, um, in me learning uh, pickleball and other things that slowing myself down helps. You know, it's like when I try to rush something, then I usually make a mistake. But then when I relax slow down and, you know, let loose of the tension, then things seem to, to fall together. And I notice that in casting, too, sometimes. You know, how come I'm screwing up all the time? And it's because I'm tense and stressed out or something or I'm rushing. And as soon as I begin to relax, then things start to, to flow again. Um, but anyway, that's just my personal experience. Um, I think it's probably a personal experience for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there some foundational skills one should work on on a, you know, in the beginning and, and also consistently throughout your fly, you know, your learning of fly, fly casting that are super important that you would want to highlight for us? Sure. Uh, I'll give you two and a half. <laughs> the first okay. one is, a, is what I call a, a foundation casting stroke. Now, in the book, it's a very specific type of thing, and I base it on a very specific range of motion and positioning for very specific reasons. But that doesn't mean everybody has to be based on that. What I'm just saying is a foundation casting strokes, something that is consistent, efficient, and repeatable. And you really look at anybody that's really good at doing anything physical in sports, and they all have some kind of foundation, you know, foundation swing, whatever the case may be. Same thing in fly casting. You can have a foundation stroke you can always go back to. And I practice my foundation casting stroke. You know, I've been fly fishing for a long time. I've been teaching fly casting for a very long time. And I still go back and practice my foundations uh, because it's that important. Mm-hmm. So you've got to yeah. have that basis to work from. I'd say another thing that gets ignored a lot is quality line control. And you sort of see a mismatch of all sorts of things going on. And if you're going someplace, well, like Belize, and you've got wind and you've got, you know, you're casting out of a boat and you might be starting to fly in hand. And, 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 you know, these things begin to to add up. You've got a guy breathing down your neck saying, you know, 60 feet at 11 o'clock, let's go. 
having poor line control skills can put you uh, into a pretty bad spot pretty quickly. So you know, being able to control the line while you're casting, while you're shooting, and while you're retrieving, uh, that's a very important thing, not just to casting, but to fishing success, in my opinion. And that one, mm-hmm. I think, sometimes gets ignored at the expense of other things. And the half, I would say, and this is sort of an all-around half, is learning how to haul. And then that sounds kind of crazy if you think, well, I do some short-range trout fishing, whatever. Look, I haul all the time for everything. And it's not just about making line go faster so you can go farther. That is a use and a very good use for it. But hauling adds control to the cast throughout. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And in fact, sometimes I use hauling to improve things uh, like curves, which is not a distance skill at all. But I can use that haul to do certain things with the fly line that I couldn't do otherwise. So that's kind of my half skill. Uh, it may not necessarily uh, be as important, obviously, as a good foundation casting stroke with the line control, but I feel that it's in there. And so yeah. people should think about about adding because it really, it really does do other things than just make for a long cast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you're talking about line control, uh, I just learned something this week. I'm reading uh, John Olsh's uh, book on permit or two books, I should say, talking about a lot of words. Um, but it was a very simple thing, and when he said it, I was like, wow, I never really thought about that. But, you know, when you start your day and you're on a boat and you're, you're stripping out 60 feet of line because you're expecting to do a 60-foot cast um, and you want to know you've got your line out and everything, then when you strip it off the reel and it's landing on the deck or in your, your stripping basket or whatever, it's actually piling up in the reverse order that you want it to. Because if you then start casting and, and the line's peeling out, it's coming off the bottom of the coil rather than the top. So his tip was cast your line out, then retrieve your line and put it on the deck so that it's in the proper coiling so your, your coil, your, your line's coming off the top of the coil rather than underneath. Kind of like your garden hose, you know, uh, if you pull right. it from the bottom, you're going to get a tangle. If you pull it from the top, you're less likely to get a tangle. So, I thought that was an interesting, interesting tip uh, for the start of the day. So, so anyway, that's uh, that's my little tip for the week here. Um, sure, it's a good tip. everyone falls under that header of line control, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone talks about um, you know how important a loop is. Can you explain the role of the loop as it you know plays in your in your casting? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I think, that, you know, initially the concept of loop is that it's the, it's the unrolling section of fly line when you make the cast, whether it's back cast or forward casting. And you can even have a loop of line, for example, a D loop, which doesn't actually unroll. Part of it contacts the water. The fly leg of it actually contacts the water at one point and then is cast forward into what we would, you know, normally see as a, a standard fly casting loop. You know, the, the structure of a loop can tell you some things about what's going on uh, with your cast. Of course, for example, a tailing loop, tell you all sorts of things about what's going on, things you don't want to have going on necessarily, but it can be that information. I think sometimes, uh, from my perspective, uh, the concept of tight loop is one of those things we get drilled into us uh, in fly casting and fishing over and over. But the concept of tight loop is perhaps uh, somewhat misunderstood or is has excessive emphasis placed on it from a fishing perspective. You know, the, the best loop in a fishing perspective is the one that gets the fly to the target in the way you intend. Mm-hmm. So there are plenty of times when, uh, for a very long distance cast, my loop may start out very large, and then it goes through what's, uh, through what's called morph, uh, which is called loop morph, to become very tight by the end of the cast. 
it starts out large because I have a there's very large range of motion with a lot of acceleration going on in order to get the fly uh, to the target, to the wind, you know, and across a long distance. So, you know, did I cast a bad loop because it was open at first? Not at all. It morphed into a you know an arrowhead by the end, which was not really exactly what I started with anyway. It was really an artifact of how the loop is interacting with the atmosphere and uh, sort of some of the dynamics that were going on as the loop was being formed and, and so on. So I think that what we need to really focus on from a fishing perspective is a loop functioning the way we need it to for the situation. And that includes things like B-loops. You know, we, we oftentimes talk about a highly efficient B-loop, for instance, has a certain shape and is as deep as possible. But there are times when the D-loop has to be rounded and kind of, you know, just barely there because you don't have any casting room. Is that a bad D-loop? Well, I mean, if I was demonstrating at a show and I had all the room in the world to make a perfect D, I might say, well, that's not really a good example of what I would call an ideal D-loop. But you know what? With weeds right behind me and trees overhanging, this is the best D I can make. So mm-hmm. it's a really good D-loop for the fishing situation. So when I look at loops, I definitely look at them as a dynamic entity that can change as I need them to to deliver the fly in the way that I want it to be delivered. How's that for a, for a semi-weasel answer? Yeah, and, it, and it, doesn't it also depend on, you know, what, what you're throwing? In other words, are you throwing three oh, flies yeah. with weight as opposed to a dry fly? Um, sure. If, if, I, you know, if I'm chucking big uglies and there, there's a propensity for tangling going on, the last thing I want to do is try to cast some sort of ultra laser sharp loop where the, the fly leg and the rod leg are, you know, mere inches apart. You know, I want to make sure that, like I said before, the loop allows me to achieve the kind of fly delivery I need. In this case, it might be the flies need to be delivered in the way I want them to. And I want to make sure that the most important thing is they don't tangle and they get to where the fish are. So I may modify what I'm doing to create a loop that simply allows that to be achieved with the most efficiency I can given the overall angling situation, whether it's wind or you know distance and that type of thing. Right, right. Dino in Michigan asks, uh, any thoughts on factors that lead to consistency beyond practice or trying too hard? Any thoughts that lead to any factors, thoughts on any consistency beyond practice? Well, uh, I guess from my perspective, practice is number one, but, you know, the old saying is practice makes perfect, and, you know, the addition to that is, but if you practice wrong, all it makes you is perfectly wrong. Right. So you can end up practicing the wrong thing over and over and over again until you become really, really good at casting poorly. And you don't want that because then you have to unlearn it and then relearn the right way of right. doing things. And by the right way, I mean an effective way, an efficient way. I'm not saying there's only one way to do this or that. Unless we're talking about a specific type of skill. So from my perspective, uh, in addition to practicing correctly for the skill you're trying to uh, learn, I think that uh, outside tools can be of real help. Again, the video camera can definitely be of help. Um, in some cases, if someone is having trouble with their tracking, which is the sort of the forward and backward movement of the rod, uh, for example, in in spade casting, tracking is all over the place because you have this you know, sort of elliptical rising movement that goes on. But in overhead casting, if you're trying to cast very straight overhead, you don't want swinging motions going on. So casting next to a wall, for instance, can help you with that because you, your knuckles will touch it. You'll know right away if you're moving out of plane. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, using some of these outside, outside looking in and self-teaching little things can really help you hone in what's going on with your skill. Even something as simple as casting uh, or practicing pantomiming, for example, the rod butt in front of a mirror. That's an old one. And people have been talking about casting and fly casting in front of a mirror for ages. Uh, that can really help because all of a sudden you may see something you didn't realize was actually going on. And mm-hmm. like, the, like yeah. the video camera can help with that, but the mirror is intimate. You know, it's a little bit, it just seems like it's a little bit closer. It's, it's, in, it's truly in real time versus video, which has got a little bit of a delay because you've got to go out and look at it again. Right. So those right. types of things can help you hone what's going on uh, as you practice versus just practicing. Period. Right. David uh, in Dallas, uh, Texas, says, um, what are the keys to a more powerful roll cast? Is there any way to help load the rod with the left, uh, in parentheses, retrieving hand? Well, what I look at when it comes to uh, getting better roll cast, and we're not talking here about changing any kind of equipment, because you can do some of that to, to change things up, but I want to talk about, you know, it's, it's the same gear you've always fished with. One is learning to haul. Uh, you can actually, believe it or not, use a double haul during a roll cast, depending on what type of, uh, sort of what form of roll casting you're using. But a single haul in the former cast could definitely help. Uh, in addition, getting the biggest, most, I think the biggest, most dynamic D you can is also of help. If you look up uh, the term switch casting or jump roll, uh, there are several different names for it, but it's it's halfway between an overhead cast and a roll cast. Sort of, it's it's part of that sort of spade type family, if we want to call it that, of casting, where you're putting a lot of line behind you in the D very rapidly, uh, just enough time for the D to form and then forward. You don't want to do a very slow drawback. Now, if you're in a confined situation where all you've got is a slow drawback, I try to keep it moving and keep the line under as much smooth tension as I can to draw the line up quickly to my side, up and around forward with a haul, uh, and that I find is actually pretty good in a lot of situations where you're probably that tight, which means, you know, sort of overhanging, brushy, trebby, uh, maybe bass pondy kind of situations, but if you've got the extra room, definitely learn the jump roll slash switch cast, because it can be a revelation if you've never done it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, though. Yeah, yeah, putting that haul on there. Uh make all the difference in the world. Uh, another question, Jim in California, can you break down the most, and this is maybe something you can't do that quickly tonight, but maybe you can give us some tips on most effective way to learn and, and or refine the double all. Uh, that depends a bit on the person, uh, but I'll, I'll just draw from experience over the years. And the single most effective way you can learn and refine the double haul is go with an instructor who actually really understands the the double haul, mm-hmm. not just can sort of do it, but somebody who understands why you would haul late during the casting stroke versus just hauling, or why you would sort of focus on haul length or haul angle versus, again, just sort of yank it on the line. You want somebody that kind of understands what's going on there, and that, that person can really help you, A, learn, but also be really improve what's going on. Uh, a lot of times, I, I said haul late during the casting stroke, a lot of times that's all a caster actually needs when I see them. Like, oh, you're hauling too early in your back casting. Mm-hmm. Just say to yourself, haul late, and time that with a back cast, things tighten right up. Yeah, I know. So, you, you, uh, you do you use that. You just did it verbally, but you, you do that uh, in your text in your book about, <laughs> you know. I do. I actually, I, I write the text in that way so that the actual yeah. font changes. Right? Yes, absolutely. So you're actually yeah. visualizing what's going on within the text, which right. is something right. I really wanted to do in the book. Instead of simply writing it out, which 
you know, it's useful. It's actually visualized in a text, yeah, which is yeah, more definitely. useful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think if I think if most people listening said haul late and time that late with the speed up to the stop, as as our our dear friend and late friend Lefty would have said, uh, speed up and stop. Or as I talk about in my book, you know, acceleration, you know, speeding up through turnover to the stop, uh, timing it that way. Uh, most people would probably find that their hauls are markedly improved. There are other ways to improve hauls as well, depending on the person, but that is certainly one way in which you can uh, very quickly, oftentimes, tune things that, you know, really only needed that. Um, but, yes, an instructor, and then, you know, a book is useful. I'm not going to say that a book is the way you should do it. I think an instructor should be first, but the book is useful because it can help you go back and read about things and think things through and work through exercises at your speed your own, right. very own speed, read, think it through a little bit, then do. And, of course, having video of somebody who is doing the haul well helps because, again, it, it jogs the memory of what you had during the instruction, and it gives you that fully up-to-speed uh, ability to sort of mimic what's going on, watch yourself in a mirror on, on, on video. If you have a, your smartphone out there and maybe you've got your laptop or your tablet and you can sort of watch something from one place and video yourself on the other, You'd be amazed at how quickly things can come together. So yeah. I think that's some some decent advice about going on and on about it. Yeah, definitely. Need to take another quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll finish up with some of the questions. I know we've got some coming in online, and we'll try to get to those as well. So uh, hang in there, folks. We'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than just a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jackcaval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. That's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Jason Borger about single-handed fly casting. If you'd like to ask Jason a question, just go to our homepage, AskAboutFlyFishing.com. And use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer it on the show tonight. Okay, Jason, another one up here, uh, Craig Myers, Portland, Oregon. He says, Jason, no matter what I try, I always end up with the last two feet or so of tippet and my fly curving to the left. I try to focus on a straight line plane for, for both my back and forward casts, but I still get the curve at the end. Consequently, as soon as it hits the water, my tippet is leading downstream instead of the fly uh, when I'm casting from river right. What should I concentrate on to fix this? Okay. Uh, I already see that he's you know, working on doing a straight line plane, you know, casting plane back and forth. And I would say that uh, something to look at would be uh, wrist movement within that, uh, not fore-aft, but sort of uh, any kind of skewing or you know, right to left wrist movement that's happening, particularly at the at the very end of the of the casting stroke. So 
this is where a mirror, or better yet, a video camera, because, uh, you know, the mirror is great for the pantomime, but you might actually fix it in pantomime because you know what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, videotaping yourself, in this case, you know, without the tape, we're talking about, you know, your smartphone or whatever, uh, can really help because then you're seeing what's going on when you've got the full line length out. And it's entirely possible there's some little hook action that's going on uh, within that stroke. Uh, it might not be major, which is why it's a small amount of hook action and why it's not immediately obvious because he's really trying to focus on getting that nice, you know, fore-aft, the backcast and forecast basically being in line. So there could be a little bit of wrist action going on there. Uh, I would take a look at that first before I do anything else. And if it's still puzzling, uh, maybe you, you know, spend one hour with an instructor who can have a good hard look at what's yeah. going on there. And that may clear it up very quickly. What angle would you videotape that at to get the... I'd videotape it uh, probably right from the front. Straight at it. The forward yeah. cast is the problem. So uh, I would put the camera out there, you know... And try to cast to the like camera, so maybe? The way. Yeah. Cast yeah. right over the top of the camera. Yeah. yeah. But you want to be close enough that you can really see what's going on with the hand and arm. So maybe closer than that. Even. You just want to be close enough to not whack in the camera, but you want the camera to be basically straight on with about where your hand is going to finish that, that forward mm-hmm. cast so that you can really see what's going on there at, at the sort of at the last moments and see if there's any kind of twisting of the wrist side to side or anything like that that's happening. And, and sometimes yeah. it's subtle. You, you can see, you know, wait a second, I know what's going on. right There it is. You know, my phone is it's turned a little bit when I, after I came forward, or it was turned when I went back, and then straightened out when I came forward. So it looked fine to me, but it wasn't fine on the back cast. And when I come forward and straighten my thumb out and look at my thumbnail, all of a sudden I'm throwing a tiny curved cast without realizing yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, Phil in uh, Kentucky, he said, I met Joan Wolf several years ago. She struck me as a very slightly built lady. My guess is she might have weighed 100 pounds, yet her casting technique enabled her to cast large distances seemingly without effort. What do you believe are the key techniques to pay attention to as I develop into a better caster? Okay. Uh, yes, Joan. Uh, Joan is pretty amazing. Uh, I don't think anybody can deny that once you see her cast. And she does seem to cast enormous distances seemingly without effort. Uh, and that's one of the things that makes her so engaging. Well, I can tell you one thing. If you look at any of Joan's books, particularly her big fly casting techniques book, you'll notice that she is very adamant about having a really good foundation. And, you know, I, I can usually tell when somebody's been through one of Joan's courses, particularly one of her more advanced, more focused courses, because they have a certain Joan Wolf casting stroke. And that's a casting stroke that casts a long ways. If you stretch it and adjust it, it's a casting stroke that's highly accurate if you tighten it up a little bit and focus it. So it's a, it's a highly successful stroke. And the, the foundation casting stroke I use in my own book has some relationship to what, to what Joan is doing as well. A little bit different positioning in relation to the body, but not much. I mean, we're, we're pretty close. So one of the things you can do is get that great, repeatable, efficient foundation in place. And like I said, I practice my foundations all the time. I sit in the desk and I practice my foundations. I want to make sure that stuff's always there. Learning how to haul. You've got to learn how to haul well. And that whole haul weight kind of thing is a stepping stone to that. That's simple, but really, a lot of times the haul comes too early, particularly during the back cast. So getting that haul timed up nicely really make a difference. And, of course, line management is important if you're going to try to cast long distances. It doesn't matter what you're doing, trout fishing or 
tarpon fishing, it really doesn't make any difference. You've got to have decent line management. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Joan is exquisitely well-practiced. She has a really great foundation stroke. She uses her body, if she needs to, uh, to, to add a little bit of casting stroke length and so forth, a little bit of rocking back and forth if that's necessary. Uh, obviously, she can take her foundation and stretch it out to make it longer, to give her you know, longer casting stroke, to make the tip of the fly rod travel farther in the same period of time, which gives the line more speed and so on. But she's all about efficiency. So mm-hmm. working on efficiency and certain aspects of technique, you're there. I have to use yeah. practice for like 70 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it kind of shows you that, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of casters say, hey, it, it doesn't, it's not in the muscle, you know, to, to cast a long distance, and she obviously can prove it. Um, it's it's more in her technique uh, and, and than anything else, it seems like. So, yeah, yeah amazing. Um uh, Dave, Mesa, Colorado. Uh, my question has to do with learning to cast in saltwater from day one. I learned to fly fish and cast in freshwater uh, rivers and streams. I assume a person that grows up and learns to cast in a place like the Bahamas has little need for mending, roll casting, and so forth. That said, how would the casting progression uh, to take place, for example, learning the basics to the double haul? What adjustments? Okay, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's some stuff going on in there that uh, there's sort of more than one question happening in there. So I'll, yeah. I'll try to touch on a couple yeah. of things. I don't want to uh, take us too long through it, but I can I can just uh, sort of talk about a few things that I think are important uh, sort of in the overall look at this. One of the things that I, I talk about in terms of mindset is it's not really salt and fresh. It's light equipment and heavy equipment, wind or no wind, distance or no distance. If you go into fly casting with that mindset, then you're in a little bit better place. A lot of times I think about salt as only the purview of these certain types of skills, but it really isn't. You know, if you're casting, uh, well, you and I were talking earlier about our mutual pal, Jeff Courier, yeah. and he's somebody who, you know, you, you mentioned a species and Jeff has probably caught it twice. Uh, but something like a Nile perch, for instance, it's an enormous fish. It lives in fresh water. Are you going to use different techniques because it lives in fresh water than a tarpon because it lives in salt water? No, using many of the same types of skills. So I like to think about it as again, heavy, light, you know, near, far, uh, wind, no wind. So go wind it with that mindset initially. So really you're improving your casting skills all around no matter where you're going to be. And it will have bleed-over efforts even into things like, you know, small stream fishing up in the Rockies. It, skills can oftentimes cross-pollinate. So from my perspective, getting ready for casting, you know, heavy, long, and windy, Focus on getting used to the equipment you're going to be using. That's very important. Having a casting stroke that allows you to move that equipment longer distances easily versus putting a lot of strain on your joints. If it's the kind of thing where you're just trying to whip that thing out there because, you know, it's big and you're trying to go far, you're actually liable to hurt yourself and you're not going to get what you're after anyway. So a casting stroke that you can repeat over and over and that you can focus on with good range of motion and without creating a lot of, uh, you know, unnecessary joint instability and so forth that could lead to not necessarily injury maybe, but could lead to some pain, discomfort, sort of throwing you off your fishing day. I talk about having the foundation stroke and stretching it out, tilting it over perhaps and stretching it out. So you're using a similar type of motion. You're just making it longer and you're moving past your body in the back and forward in front of your body. Uh, more than you would for a short-range cast. 
So we've got to deal with the heavy, and you've got to deal with the long, and you've got to deal with the wind. And some of that's going to come from learning to accelerate the rod over a longer distance. And usually I talk about accelerating the rod tip over a longer distance more than anything else, not just the butt of the rod, really the tip. So some of the skills I use look very trouty, even though I'm casting in the salt. It might be a rather upright casting stroke, but I use a skill called layback, which is laying the rod back basically to horizontal after the back cast loop is first formed. So the back cast loop goes, you lay the rod back basically to horizontal, and now when you come forward, rotating from your shoulder and pulling forward with the fly rod, the tip is moving through an extremely long distance over a very short period of time, and that really can add line speed. And that's where the concept of loop morph we talked about earlier comes in. The loop may start off large, but boy, it doesn't take very long to morph into an arrowhead. It really goes. So taking that and adding in, obviously, the skill of hauling. And I think for any kind of distance where you really got to be distance with heavy and long, you need to have a haul in place. Now, that's not saying uh, you shouldn't have the foundations firmly in place and you shouldn't be able to cast long without a haul. You should be able to do those things. But Hauling can really do a lot for you, and not just from going farther, but from having better control of the line in a lot of different situations. So get a good stroke that you can repeat that's not putting undue stress. Learn how to stretch it out, and then learn how to, as you're doing that, learn how to make the rod tip move a long distance in a short period of time. An instructor can really help with that as well. Uh, books can help with that, and video can help with that too to back you up, and then Getting into the hauling skills uh, is very important. Now, I haven't talked, about, talked at all about line control because standing on the line will make your 100-foot cast turn into a 30-foot <laughs> cast in a hurry. <laughs> and I think we all have experienced that one. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So that's a bit of a key. But if we're just docking the casting, uh, make sure you've got the foundations and then get your foundation hauling in place. And as you do so, just learn how you have to stretch and move that rod tip a longer distance in the same period of time, and away you go. Yep, yep. Um, Dino, again, uh, another question. He says, what adjustments in tackle or technique would you make to deal with the wind? Heavier, lighter line, shorter, or longer working line, loop adjustment? Mm. Well, I guess it depends on what kind of wind we're talking about. We're talking about headwind, a tailwind, a crossing wind. There's lots and lots of adjustments you can make. But I think... When people talk about casting into the wind, they usually mean, you know, a headwind. I think that's what stymies a lot of people. So with a headwind, uh, you know, go back and harp on it again, but pulling is your yeah. friend. Uh, being able to create a loop that either starts out fairly tight or is going to morph quickly. And, and into a headwind, loops can morph very quickly. Uh, you can see it on high-speed video, but to your eye, it looks like they're arrowheads almost instantly. But you want something that'll, that'll get through the wind. And... You also, a lot of times, want to be casting more at the target versus over the target. Uh, and that really is for almost any of the wind from the front or quartering or from the side. If you're casting high over the target, where you might cast if it was a calm condition, you're going to get the line to blown back towards you or off to one side or the other if you're talking about quartering or crossing winds. So adjusting the casting stroke so that you are delivering the fly at the target versus over the target can make a very big difference. Because that way, when the loop unrolls at the end, it has essentially no airtime. So the fly unrolls and it's on target. Uh, that sometimes gets forgotten in the heat of the moment. You end up casting high. And you get the distance, you're fine. I mean, you, you got enough line speed. All great. Rod tip moved a long ways. There goes your loop. It's an arrowhead. Unfortunately, it rolled 10 feet over the target and got blown off course. So that doesn't do you much good, especially if you put a fly down in the middle of the school of somethings that are swimming along. 
So learning how to adjust your trajectory, and this goes for headwinds, crossing winds, and so forth, can be very important. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, another question from Dino. He says, distance versus presentation accuracy. What factors should be involved dash tackle and method? Mm. I, well, I, I'm going to say I like to get as close as I possibly can <laughs> anytime I can when it comes to distance yeah. versus presentation accuracy. Uh, sometimes as close as you possibly can is an entire fly line. That is honestly the truth. I have been in that situation more than once in my life where that was the case. That was as close as I could get. But I always try to get as close as I possibly can so that I get the presentation accuracy as well. Do you, do you yeah. feel there's a, a distance where you start to lose that accuracy? I mean, for most people, you know, is it? Well, it's interesting. I think for a lot of people, the distance where they first lose their accuracy is right off the rod tip out to maybe about 25 or 30 feet. Then they're good in a certain window because they're used to casting a certain range, and then they're bad beyond that range. Mm-hmm. And bad beyond that range can sometimes be environmental factors. You just can't do anything about it. You know, you're going to pop a, a big cast. You know, it's out there. It's hanging out there. And even the slightest breeze at a, on a, a cast, it's a true, honest-to-goodness. I mean, against the tape, 100-foot fishing cast, it's a long one. Uh, you know, even a slight breeze can push that thing off course a little bit. Right. But oftentimes really close is really hard because people haven't worked on adjusting their trajectory. And really far can be really hard because, again, there's not really so much attention to trajectory and to trying to compensate for wind and so forth, and it's more of a heave and hope. In the middle, people tend to be pretty good, depending on what they're used to doing, whether it's trout or tarpon or, or whatever the case may be. But uh, I think that I think that learning trajectory and exercising with trajectory, in the book I have a thing called the trajectorcise, which is it's a horrible name, but I, I realized that you know once you read it and realize how terrible it was, you'd never forget it. And it's really about starting right off the rod tip and being very up and down, because that's how you get accurate at close ranges, is very up and down, all the way out to trying to get the fly to land, if not first, very close to that, at very long fishing ranges. So it's really a way to go out and back and sort of force yourself to to get out of your comfort zone and uh, learn how to put the fly down where it needs to go, uh, no matter what the conditions are or distances. Yeah, yeah, good, good tips, good tips. Uh, We have a few questions that came in online here. I'd like to try to grab a couple of these. Uh, Roger Campbell up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, he says, what suggestions do you have for casting weighted flies, also such uh, flies with an indicator? Kind of uh, problem. One of the yeah. things, yeah, sure, you know, especially when you, as I say, adding the meat, you have the meat potatoes and the silverware on the end, and then you, you know, you throw in the birthday candle, which is the, the right. indicator on there. So that can get a little interesting. Um, casting what I call, in fact, it's not just what I call, but it, it's the idea of an underloop. It's a term I like to use a lot, so uh, I tend to use it a lot in the book, and I tend to use it a lot in my discussions. And under loop is actually cast, a back cast, that goes under the tip of the fly rod, deliberately so. Now, if you make a sidearm back cast, and you cast what might be called an over loop, another term that I use, which goes over the tip of the fly rod, sure, you know, gravity and so forth is going to have its way, and the, and the, the line's going to drop down a little bit. What I'm talking about is moving the fly rod specifically in a way that creates an under loop. So the loop travels deliberately underneath the tip of the fly rod, smoothly up and around the back, and that allows you then to take more of a quartering 
be a three-quarters position coming forward to keep that stuff away from your body and still cast sort of a, an open, relaxed loop going forward, and nothing touches anything. Most particularly, nothing touches you, which is key when you're casting the really nasty stuff. So the concept of under loop and sort of it's almost almost a slinging around and forward. You're really guiding this sort of mess of stuff you've got to catch at the end to get it out where you want to go versus trying to just uh, force it out there with, uh, you know, a fast overhead cast or something like that, which could result in uh, all sorts of messes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another one on the Internet, um, John Gilbert in Spokane. Uh, what is the most common cause of hooking your own line on the forward portion of your cast? Uh Probably one of the single most common causes would be uh, a tailing loop, which where you have line in intersecting itself, basically coming forward. And when that happens, you know, all you got to do is drop a piece of fly line, and it gets instantaneously tangled. We all know that. I mean, that's what they're programmed to do. So you can take that and put it into a loop, <laughs> basically, and you've got instantaneous tangles. So it, it could well be that going on. And if it's hooking up on a knot or something a lot, uh, you know, it's probably crossing somewhere in there, and and then it's just you know that leader or line is is uh, just sticking right in that knot, and away you go. So, having a look at what's going on through forward loop, or maybe your back loop as well, uh, is is important. And if you've got what's called tailing loop, which is pretty easy to find on the internet, type in tailing loop examples, and they'll probably get a zillion videos that pop up and show it. Uh, if you've got that going on, you need to do some fixing so that you know, have the line contacting itself, uh, particularly as you come forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, another question, Rob Miller is in uh, Mexico City. It says, Jason, you're a key member of the Flycasting Institute. There's been an interesting use of video and various analyzers for detailed casting analysis there. Uh, do you have any thoughts or ideas on the use of existing or emerging technologies that will contribute to increasing our knowledge of flycasting and rod slash line development? Uh, I think Rob actually uh, has a copy of my book. Thanks, Rob. I remember your name. Uh, well, you know, in the, in the Flycasting Institute, uh, we've done a lot with uh, motion capture, three-dimensional motion capture, which is Lord of the Rings type of stuff. Uh, the system is nowhere near that complex, but it's one that was used for gait analysis and so forth uh, at Montana State University. So we've been through that for uh, a few years in a row looking at uh, Flycasting, and that was really helpful. It's, it's three-dimensional, and it's data stored in the computer. It's not video. So you can rotate it around and look at it and so forth without sort of the limitations that accompany video. That's really useful. Uh, there's still some things going on with the flyer and so forth that are harder to look at because of the fact that you have to have a reflective surface for the cameras to capture, although there are some ideas floating around out there about how to do that. That might be really interesting to see what's going on with the line in certain types of situations. Um, as far as other new te- uh, you know, emerging technologies go, uh, you know, sports motion capture is getting more and more advanced by the day, even for your phone. It's really interesting. So you can really uh, get some relatively inexpensive apps and so forth and really see what's going on uh, with your cast yourself uh, and sort of analyze things. And like I said, you know, the phone I'm using right now is for 4K video at, at 60 frames per second, which is, which is essentially 2x slow-mo. But, you know, it shoots regular HD at like 240 frames a second. That's like 10x slow-mo. So you can watch yourself on this thing. You can go down to the local cell phone store and, and pick up, and you can see yourself at 10x slow-mo. That is cool, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because now yeah. you, have, you have access to technology in your pocket that would have been crazy not even all that long ago, yeah. and it's, it's yeah. available to you. Yeah. So I, I think that, I, honestly, I think the cell phone in some ways has become almost this, 
technological wonder for sports analysis, including forecasting. You know, not everybody can afford an eighty thousand dollar mocap system. I can't, but you know, we borrowed one. But then when you know I want to just see what's happening with my cast, with the loose on my arm or something like that, I just whip this thing out of my pocket, stick it on a tripod, and I got two hundred forty frames a second I can look at. Ten X slow mo. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Well, we definitely uh, we got a few more questions, but uh, I wanted you to throw out there. Um, I know uh, Phil McCartney was interested in um, w- wondering if you do any uh, talks at uh, clubs and uh, doing workshops and for casting and so forth. Um, if if he was interested, how would he get a hold of you or anybody else get a hold of you to talk to you about those kind of things? Oh yeah, that's that's super easy. Uh, if you just go to my website, uh, which is just jasonborder.com, it's my first name last name dot com. Uh, there's a email link you can grab there. You can get a hold of me pretty easily, um, and the book is is on there as well. I think it's I have it set right at the very top. Since we're having our little discussion tonight, I figured I'd better pin it to the top so people can see that right away. Um, but yeah, I'm very easy to get a hold of. Uh, just email me, and I try to get responses back. Uh, you know, within less than a week. Uh, sometimes it'll be right away, but occasionally I'm traveling or doing something else. So sometimes I have a little bit of patience with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. So JasonBorger.com, folks. You want to reach That's out it. to him. Yeah. Uh, that's where you'll find him and uh, probably his new projects and so forth going on there, too. So um, This one, I don't know where it's coming from, but I'll ask it anywhere as a, as a closing question. So, Jason, is there really going to be a new River Runs Through It with women, or was that an April Fool's joke? <laughs> <laughs> there were two April Fool's jokes, actually, that ran. They were pretty clever. One was with women, and one was basically River Runs Through It Part 2, which was accompanied by... Uh, fake script pages and everything it was really a well done uh, April Fool's joke. Uh, there are there are no sequels to River Runs Through It that that I have ever been made aware of. Yeah, that's the family story starts and ends there. So, okay, all right. That's, that good. one's going to have to live as it is. All right. Well, um, we got to wrap this up, so um, stick with us, folks, though. We're going to give away that uh, one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And we'll also be giving away uh, a copy of Jason's book, Single-Handed Fly Casting, A Modular Approach. So um, thanks to Jason for that. And uh, so stick with me, and we'll do just that, give those uh, prizes away in just a second. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and uh, 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry has united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org. SaveBristolBay.org. And there you can learn uh, how you can get involved and help out with this cause. Just a reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show. It says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now we're going to give away our prizes for the drawings. Uh, the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from this show's registration database. And... Uh, if you didn't register uh, for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. You don't want to miss out on a chance at uh, some of the incredible prizes we have to offer. If you are a lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International. Um, to learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org. 
That's flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to, to be a part of and, and, uh, and join. Uh, they do a lot with conservation efforts uh, around the world. So uh, if you don't win tonight, uh, check them out. So let's see here. Fire up the uh, computer here. Hold on a second. Just a second. And let's see here. So, uh, looks like we have a winner, Sean McDonald in California. So, Sean McDonald in California, congratulations, being a winner of the one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International. So, all right, let me just jot that one down. And then let's go for the one-year member subscription, one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Uh, and let me... Get over here and see if we get another winner here. Oh, brother. A bunch of uh, somebody spammed uh, that form. <laughs> I'm getting a bunch of spam coming through there. Hold on a second. And it looks like it's going to be Richard uh, Scaloni uh, or Skylone or something like that in Pennsylvania. So, Richard, again, uh, congratulations on that. We'll get that magazine subscription going for you. Uh, okay, got those jotted down. Now let's uh, let's uh, give away Jason's book. And uh, for that, I just have to clear my queue here. And the question is pretty simple, I think, um, but um, what, Jason talked about this again and again, and uh, what's the most important thing you should do to improve your fly fishing, uh, fly casting skills? What's the most important thing you should do and that you should be doing all the time? So if somebody can give me an answer to that, you might have a chance at winning uh, Jason's book here. And so they are typing away, hopefully, here, Jason. We'll see if we can get a winner. Right. And uh, somebody's going to get lucky here. Or somebody was paying attention and can put it into words for me. Let's see here. Uh, don't think I was – well, let me, let me throw this at you, Jason, and see uh, if, if you read my mind right. Uh, the first answer I got was the hall. Um, it's not really what I was looking for. Um, in certain circumstances, that'll certainly give you a lot of improvement, but it's not the thing I would focus on. Right uh, across at, the, at, at the at sort of at the at the core level of fly casting. Well, this is a pretty good uh, answer, I would say. Um, Phil McCartney wrote, uh, I have a foundational casting stroke that you can always go back to in quality line control, uh, learning how to call to achieve control, but uh, not just to add distance. That pretty much covers all of it, doesn't it? Right there. 
But yeah. he got the first part with the founda- foundational yeah. casting stroke, which is what I was really after. So, um, yeah. So, Phil, you got yourself another book, <laughs> and you're going to love this one. And as a teacher himself, um, this ought to serve him well. Uh, so, I think so. Um, I hope so. Yeah, he's uh, he's doing some uh, fly casting teaching in in his area to the clubs and so forth. So. Uh, it ought, it'll get well used um, and dog-eared, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm pleased to hear that. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, Phil, uh, send me your address again. You, you know the routine, and we'll get that over to uh, uh, to Jason, and uh, he can get that book out to you. So um, thanks uh, for listening so carefully, Phil, and uh, congratulations on that. That's great. Okay. Um, Listen, uh, Jason, it's been great having you again, as always, and uh, the many shows we've done together, and you've always made it so easy on me, <laughs> so I well, always appreciate my, my that. My pleasure to come on. I, I really appreciate yeah. you having me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been fun, and uh, and I'm sure people learned a lot. And uh, hey, folks, go out and get Jason's book, Single-Handed Flycasting, and, uh, and check it out. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Our next broadcast will be on May 16th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain Time and 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, that show I'll interview Ed Engel, and our topic for the show will be tying and fishing small flies. Ed Engel specializes in tying and fishing small flies, uh, fishing small flies. Imitating small insects takes extra care in presenting those tiny flies. Detecting the strikes and how to best play a trout on a, on a small fly are all part of fishing small flies. So join us to learn uh, secrets uh, on accomplishing this. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, uh, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Watermaster and Baja Fly Fishing Company for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.